Prepare to hear the truth from a real whistleblower and American patriot. Here's civil liberties enthusiast, Second Amendment defender, and indefinitely suspended FBI agent, Kyle Serafin. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Kyle Serafin Show. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for being with me today. I got to tell you something. We did a show on Monday. Um, we actually taped it, I think, on Sunday or Saturday. It doesn't really make a difference. Uh, with my attorney and friend who does so much firearms litigation, so so much, so many, does so so much uh, litigation in the firearms, the Second Amendment space, Stephen Stambalia, and the response was overwhelming. And I don't know if that's because there's a bunch of y'all from ARFCOM that uh, decided to tune in or if it's because uh, we've just reached kind of a tipping point, but... Our biggest video on Rumble up until that point had 5,200 views. And uh, the last time I looked, it was well over 22,000 for this interview with Steven. Now, first of all, he's a, he's a wonderful dude. So he definitely is a, a worthy guest for this sort of thing. But uh, I'm really grateful for all of you, our listeners and our viewers that came out and, and supported this particular uh, situation and this particular interview um, our Monday interviews are my most fun things. Talking about things is just me talking, and sometimes that can get a little old. I imagine it's it's only got so much value. But we're going to provide you some information today. As you probably have recognized, if you are familiar with the Kyle Serafin Show, the thing that I do not do is breaking news. That's not what I'm trying to be. But I do want to share with you our current events and some trends that are happening based on the background, the experience that I have to add some uh, some flavor to it. So today we're going to be talking about uh, a viral video that was from uh, Savannah Hernandez, uh, also known as Sav Says on uh, Twitter. And this is a video that showed some drag racing going on in my old hometown of Austin, Texas. Uh, it's troubling. It's troubling on a lot of levels. And I'll tell you why. We're going to get into that. Uh, we're going to discuss three pieces of which I was associated with all of them. And I do think that's a turning point in sort of the uh, the pushing uh, that the suspendables, my little group of whistleblowers has been doing against the FBI in general. We're going to talk about wellness rooms in the Newark field office. We're going to talk about the uh, the use of Director Ray's jet and his change in pattern, which I think is worth noting. And uh, we're also going to talk about a, uh, a third piece on here, which was a shooting that occurred on Monday night in Philadelphia. And everything about it is weird. Everything about it is unusual. And we're going to get into it and why. There's a lot of danger when people start, uh, not danger, foolishness, let's call it reckless opinions, when it comes to getting after things in the public sphere, a ton of people want to weigh in on their own opinions and things like this when they have absolutely no idea what they're talking about. So I'm going to give you some some unvarnished information about the way the DOJ handles shootings and the way that we, as law enforcement professionals, are held to a certain standard. And you know, that standard is not the same for people that don't have training and experience and, you know, backgrounds in constitutional law and uh, legal authorities to carry a firearm in places that other people cannot. So I think that's worth noting. And uh, we're going to get into all of that right about now. All right. So when we're talking about these things in order, let's start in Austin, Texas. I think it's emblematic. I think it's symptomatic. I'm going to have to get my microphone where I want it. It's symptomatic in a lot of ways of what is happening in a lot of liberal leftist run cities now austin is near and dear to my heart it's where i got married um it is the place that i've come back to more than once i moved there i think first in 2000 shoot maybe 2005 or 6 i moved back again 
in 2012. I moved back again in 2015. I kept coming and going. It's like, I can't, I can't quit Austin, Texas. And I do love it for a lot of reasons. It's an incredibly neat and vibrant city, but it's full of a bunch of weirdo lefties, which is kind of its charm. That's just the nature of Austin. They say, keep Austin weird. They've been doing their best, but they're, they're making Austin stupid. So we're going to talk about that. So this is the citizens free press, um, citizenfreepress.com. It says Austin, Texas turns into the fast and furious stunt scene and streets are controlled by drifters. Now this was posted on February 20th, which I believe was Monday. So let's dig into this. Uh, as we said, Sav says on Twitter showing this, I'm going to just pull this video up. I think it's worth looking at. And it's also, it's pretty bizarre. This is an area I know quite well. I'll show you on the map where it is in just a second, but let's just kind of take a peek at this video. And, uh, and here it is. So what we're seeing is a mob of people that are moving from left to right on our screen. And there's a police officer, a single police officer in a uh, marked unit. It's an SUV. The lights flashing, the emergency equipment is all activated in reverse and backing up from a mob of, I'm gonna estimate at least 50 people, maybe more, that is, that is basically backing him down the street, him or her. And uh, we just saw something fly up onto the windshield. It looks like it's bouncing. And we're just gonna see an explosion here in a second. It just kind of ignited, boom. We have a big firework that just went off, like one of those big mortars on the windshield, the second one right in front of the vehicle, as he backs up underneath the trestle bridge and he escapes from the area, like in full retreat. Fully retreating, the people here that are watching are, are cheering it on, they think that's interesting. Uh, it's absolutely awful. So uh, Los Angeles has had this sort of thing. This is saying that Austin is turning into the next Los Angeles, which is obviously the case. This sort of drifter, you know, street uh, street racing scene taking over. I'll show you another one up here too. This one's actually kind of wild. So now you've got a, uh, a view from above. This is from an aerial bridge or from a, from a high altitude. And they're showing engines revving, uh, vehicles driving into oncoming traffic to do whatever they want to do. You know, um, they're moving around traffic and uh, doing U-turns just to get the heck out of there because it looks like there's probably a hundred, maybe more cars that are blocked into this space. Now, Texas is full of big trucks, people with guns, uh, but more and more it's being taken over by this sort of weird leftist thing. I guess we can turn this thing off. You're just hearing some engines revving, some, you know, a street racer, rice rocket type stuff. Um, and then the last thing is it's going to be a, a tweet here from Aaron Cruz, who is uh, showing that there's you know, so-called chaos at Barton Springs and Lamar in Austin, Texas. Um, the police tried to get in there with one vehicle. There was only one, there was only one unit that could respond at that time. And <laughs> that's Alex Jones. Uh, there was only one unit that could respond and, and that unit was backed up. So I'm going to show you what we're talking about. So if you're looking on this here, this is the map. Um, Austin as a city is divided. The, uh, the main part of Austin proper the the downtown where there's the Seaholm district and some of the stuff that you're seeing on the map here is right here uh, there's going to be the texas capital which i'm showing you right in the middle of the screen uh, just near that is going to be above it north of it is the university of texas at austin that's where my wife went to school and then as you move further south you end up in the the downtown district there's all kinds of stuff here this is where sixth street is it runs right down here um, where we're going to be going over to is a little bit on the west side of the downtown there's a, a Whole Foods, and then as you move directly south on the street called Lamar, it's one of the major bridges that goes over what they call Town Lake or Ladyburg Lake, and um, that's a about a five-mile-long strip of water. It's just a dammed-up river, and it goes onto the south side, also known as South Austin. 
And South Austin is a wonderful place. I spent a ton of time down there. There's a spot on the map here. If you're watching the video, you can see it's called Auditorium Shores, highlighting it right now. Um, Auditorium Shores is where I did tons of jogging. I used to run down there and do a loop around. Uh, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful green space. It is, uh, you know, every once in a while, there's a couple of buns, bums that are hanging out and begging for money or just sleeping on the grass, whatever. But really cool statue of Stevie Ray Vaughan. Just a neat, cool spot. And obviously, it's very different than when I was there because that was years ago now. But uh, it's always been just a very athletic, outdoor, you know, pretty people, nice people doing awesome things. And uh, the space that we're talking about where this went down is right next to where it says Terry's Black's Barbecue, which is this crossroads here, just south of probably only um, maybe only a thousand feet south of the actual river as you uh, as you end up on Lamar. And that's where Barton Springs is. Um, this is an area of commerce. This is an area where there's lots of neat businesses and little shops. There's all kinds of, you know, food and stuff like that. And it's it's right in the heart of like the South Austin you know, uh, flavor. And for that to be going on in this place is just, it's really atrocious. And uh, I think it's really sad, but you know, this is what's going on right now. We've got uh, defunded police in leftist cities and they're unable to, um, they're really unable to continue doing the job that they're supposed to do. Like you cannot respond to a mob of 50 people who are throwing explosive devices and safely engage. So that's too bad. Uh, I'm pulling up the wrong stuff here. So I'm pulling up a, um, an article that I want to discuss this is from the Daily Wire. This is from the uh, Suspendables friend, Brandon Dre. Uh, Brandon and I have done a couple of interviews. We, we, um, I gave him some pieces about the, uh, the FBI director's jet. He wrote a great piece about that a little while ago. This is a new one that he did. He's quoting our friend Steve Friend, the uh, former FBI agent here. And the, and the article reads, Former FBI agents slam bureau for wasting taxpayer dollars on wellness rooms for employees. Wellness is in air quotes. So what's going on? Well, we got some tips from our friends that uh, that the FBI Newark division now has a wellness committee on your dime, on their time, and that they are um, they've they funded this little room. It's got this like massage chair and yoga space and so on. And uh, there's going to be some broadcast equipment so they can watch wellness related programs and they can, and it's, oh, it's a safe place. People can explore their feelings. It's got this sign outside, which is totally ridiculous, which may actually be, there it is. Um, I'm actually going to pull up Steve Friend's thing in a second, but it's a sign that says, oh, there's a, uh, you know, make time for yourself and take breaks. It's okay to have a bad day. You don't have to always be productive. You deserve love and care and support. And I, I got to tell you, I'm sorry, but like, are we being serious here? This is the FBI that uh, the American people think that they're paying for. They're paying for people who need to hear that it's okay to have bad days where the only thing that you do is survive the day. This is disgusting. Um, I, I gave a comment to, to Brandon about it. I'm going to read it here because I think it says exactly the way I feel about it. Um, essentially, you know, the, da the Daily Wire is quoting me by saying that, that this wellness program emulates the worst and the weakest part of, of woke corporate culture. We've always had a uh, a strong attitude in this country of like how you're supposed to to handle your own business, and um, the fact that we have people that need to go to work and have this kind of space is bizarre. So my my quote to them was that when you work and what you do is honorable and rewarding, you don't need a wellness room to set aside to gather your thoughts to you know take all this moment. Um, that used to be called your lunch break. I think we all kind of you know that like you go and you sit with your buddies, uh, you download whatever your feelings are uh, in some sort of you know, semi-work appropriate way, maybe inappropriate as long as you leave the office. Like, who cares? You take a little bit of time, then you get back to work and you do your job. Straightforward. 
but when you hire people and their work doesn't actually impact the rewarding mission of law enforcement, and so this goes back to what we just saw a second ago, that there is a re- rewarding mission. It's keeping the public safe. When you're not able to do that because the, the department's been defunded or when you have an agency that is weaponized against the American people and you just write term papers that target Catholics, um, you're going to find that that uh, rewarding mission doesn't exist and the job exists simply for its own sake. So maybe they do need a detox, uh, detox from this sort of cognitive dissonance of quote-unquote federal service. I, get, I, I saw a couple of things on Twitter today about people saying that. They're really frustrated with the term federal service when it's really just a federal jobs program. Um, so that's, that was my quote to them. And I, and I do agree that oftentimes it is not federal service. They're not serving anyone. And they're simply uh, participating in a jobs program. And that is not, it's not a good jobs program. Um, when you're just receiving money just to show up because you need a job. It, uh, it's not rewarding. It doesn't feel good. I'm going to switch over here. Uh, second article, which, uh, or rather the third article, I guess, third topic here, Dan Bongino, friend of ours and, um, a friend of mine, he, uh, he had his guys put my article up today. I wrote an article about Chris Ray's, uh, use of the FBI jet. Now, if you've been following our show a little bit, you know, that Chris Ray was basically, um, accused of by Josh Halley. He, he got called out for using the FBI jet uh, there's a couple of jets, but it's a Gulfstream 550. It's a $60 million aircraft. It was bought with counterterrorism funds. And the fact of the matter is, when you, when Congress gives money for that kind of a tool, their expectation is, is that it'll be used for a law enforcement purpose. So I got some information from my friends who are on evidence response teams that uh, fly all over the country. And uh, at the drop of a hat, they're always on call. If there's something big that goes on, a lot of times... These things are not, um, they're not FBI cases specifically, but they'll go out and they'll collect evidence because the FBI actually has a really, really good lab. They have a really good evidence collection team. They're very professionally equipped. So they'll fly out on this jet to go do that. That's what the jet's for. The jet's there for, let's say, the Las Vegas shooting, okay? Uh, There was something that happened, I believe it was in Nashville, maybe two years ago, where somebody put a a vehicle and it exploded downtown, but it had this warning before it went off. You know, my buddies on these teams went down there and they collected evidence from that. Now there could be a federal crime, but maybe not. And if it's not, it doesn't really matter for them. They're going to go out there, collect evidence, and then it's either going to be turned over to the local authorities or it'll be prosecuted federally. uh, And the investigation gets done either way. That's the purpose for this very expensive asset, this, this tool. Uh, Unfortunately, we've got an FDI director who doesn't live in Washington, DC. So that's a big chunk of this. Um, I'm going to read a couple of these pieces here because I think that uh, I think I said it pretty well in words and then we'll move forward. And uh, yes, it is a shameless plug of my own article, but I spent time on this yesterday for you. So I want you all to know. All right. Uh, FBI Director Chris Ray has come under fire in the past few months for a multitude of allegations against the self-proclaimed, quote unquote, premier law enforcement agency under the Department of Justice. Perhaps the most boring allegation is that Chris Ray is personally liable for misuse of the FBI's $60 million Gulfstream 550 jet, an allegation that the FBI's press office has denied. Once again, our friend Brandon Dre. A story published by uh, Daily Wire's Brandon Dre seems to substantiate allegations made by federal whistleblowers to the House Judiciary Committee that Chris Ray abused his access to the FBI's G550. Despite the flat denial of these charges, the FBI's national press office, um, there's new evidence that suggests otherwise. All right. And now what I've done is I have a uh, Taking a piece, if you're not following uh, aircraft on FlightAware, if that's not something you've ever done, then it is something that you can do. Uh, there is a 
There's a website called flightaware.com. If you were to plug in the tail number of any aircraft uh, in the United States, they all begin with an N, and uh, that tail number will pop up and it'll tell you where it is. And so the FBI's jet is tail number November 708 Juliet Hotel. And by looking that up, you can see exactly where it's been. Now, uh, in a break in pattern from the last several years, the FBI's G550 tail number November 708 Juliet Hotel departed for Ray's usual Fulton County weekend trip from Manassas Regional without the extra stop at Reagan National. This is what our allegation. The allegation was is that the FBI jet has been flying um, without Ray. It flies from Manassas to Reagan, lands at Reagan, and then Reagan um, is where he's picked up, and then he flies to wherever he's going to go. Now, there may be some nominal you know, reasons for why you would do that uh, on duty. There's very little reason when you're going to be doing it for your own personal travel. And in his case, his personal travel is down to his home on the weekends. And what we have in this little dot, this little uh, cut, the screenshot from FlightAware shows that he flew on, um, I can't actually see the date here, but he flew last week on Friday to Fulton County, direct from Manassas, then flew back direct to Manassas from Fulton County. And so this jet basically did this little dance back and forth. And that's sort of a tacit admission that what we said is correct, that he has been abusing it, at least on the very minimum he can't justify doing it when it's for his personal travel. And he has been historically. He's been using it for his own convenience. Now, uh, Daily Wire uh, documented, like I said, 125 of these trips. Maybe I haven't said that yet, but I will. Uh, in any case, so we'll continue on. So the whistleblowers allege that Ray typically summoned the jet from Reagan to avoid traffic. And these whistleblowers came from members of Chris Ray's own staff in positions to know details about his travel to include the tail number and the pattern of behavior. I don't want to give away too much about who's reporting these things, but they've gone to Congress with this and uh, they've gone and helped me, you know, I helped them share it. Now, the term FBI whistleblower is a very explicitly defined term under U.S. law, and it includes making an allegation that the whistleblower reasonably believes evidences a violation of rule policy or law by a federal official or quote, gross mismanagement, a waste of funds and abuse of authority, uh, or a substantial and specific danger to public health and safety. In this case, this is going to be a violation of rule policy, or it's going to be gross mismanagement or waste of funds. Now, the, the federal law that covers this is five United States code 2303. And this particular definition comes from section alpha two. So when you go and you read that law, and there's a hyperlink on there, if you go to the Bongino report or bongino.com, you'll find it right in the front here on the on the articles. Uh, you'll be able to pull that up, click right through, and I give you the law. What I want people to know is there is a definition of whistleblower. It's colloquially used for someone who calls out a problem. And that may be the case in, um, in you know, pedestrian usage. But when we talk about the legal statute, there is a whistleblower law, which is cited there, and it has a very specific meaning. So in order to get the protections that are afforded under those laws, you have to actually do this thing. Now, I've done this thing a number of times. So I'm just saying there is a not just a, a uh, re reporting requirement, there's actually a chain of people that you can report to, and they list them all in the law. And it includes things like immediate supervisors, office of general counsel, um, office of the inspector general, and then a member of Congress which interestingly enough, if you remember from August last year, Merrick Garland tried to actually sort of quell this or chill it by stating that uh, all FBI employees and DOJ employees in general had to go through the Office of Congressional Affairs in order to get approval to talk about things with Congress. But that's, that's patently false. In fact, there's federal law that says otherwise. That is 5 U.S.C. 7211, which says that all members of the federal government have a right to petition Congress and, uh, and to bring information to them. So 
Uh, the new whistleblower training that the FBI put out, if you're following Tracy Bean's reports over at UncoveredDC.com, if that's something that you do, and I recommend that you do, if you're following Citizens Free Press, you should also be following Uncovered DC. When you do it, um, what you'll see is that uh, the whistleblower protection training has tried to sort of throw the stink off saying that you can actually go to Congress. It used to say it explicitly, like a member of Congress or their staff was listed in all the trainings I remember for six straight years. But this year it says... Um, you can report to someone in compliance with 5 U.S.C. 7211. So they're not saying what that means. They're making the individual go look it up. Kind of interesting. I do think that they are trying to quell FBI agents and FBI employees uh, from going to Congress. All right. So the allegation above cited Ray's potentially illegal habit of having the jet fly to an airport that's 40 miles closer to him at significant expense to the U.S. taxpayers just for his convenience. Um, those familiar with the Washington, D.C. area and the Northern Virginia area. If you've ever been to D.C., its traffic is, it's not the worst in the world, but it's bad. It's quite bad. And uh, the east-west road that is coming out of D.C. is called I-66. It runs all the way out to West Virginia if you drive it far enough, but uh, it stops off in Manassas, which is out in, uh, which is out uh, beyond sort of the immediate areas that you'll see like Arlington and um, Alexandria and things like that that are just on the other side of the river. Now, Reagan National is just south of D.C., on the other side of the Potomac in Arlington, I think is probably the most accurate area. It's right next to a place called Crystal City. It's about four miles um, driving on city streets from the J. Edgar Hoover building. So it can get there in about 10 minutes. Uh, it's also all city streets. It's easy enough to, to figure out. So you figure it's four miles on um, on city streets going through DC, 10 minutes, or you could sit for an hour in traffic stuck on this like highway that I-66 that goes all the way out. In any case, um, during rush hour, Chris Ray has been making some choices historically. We're just going to be aware of that. So despite the high opinion of himself, it's unlikely the FBI director can justify the expenses of $2,500 per touchdown in runway fees for each time the jet lands at Reagan National. The drastically higher cost of fuel consumption for the takeoff and landing for a 40-mile flight. Those of you who know anything about aviation know that uh, the most expensive time is the, the way up and the way back down. That's when the air's thickest. That's when you have to have the most kind of thrust coming out of the engines because you're not just uh, coasting on lift. And, uh, and you're overcoming the most amount of friction. So it's the single most ex you know expensive time is the first half hour and the last half hour of any given flight. Uh, unfortunately, when you're just going up and then flying back down, it's the most expensive flight that you could take on a jet like that. And then the added wear and pair and depreciation of this government asset simply to avoid the hour in traffic. Uh, the flight can be anywhere from 12 minutes long to 25 minutes, depending on the pattern over DC. So that's not good. Uh, regardless of Director Ray may bill as a private sector attorney, uh, his government salary is a far cry from his reported $9.2 million that he made before taking the FBI director job. $9.2 million a year is what he walked away to go earn uh, somewhere in the, like the $200,000 range. So we, we quote an article said that uh, Jim Comey in 2017 claimed $172,000 through OPM documents. Um I've had other people tell me that the FBI director makes as much as $235,000 a year. You know, that's a big difference between 172 and 235, but none of those have anything to do with somebody who made 9.2 million and has, you know, has a, um, an eight figure net worth is the estimation that it's probably somewhere in the twenties of his, uh, 20 millions <laughs> net worth. Anyhow, there's no possible argument that an hour of his time in the backseat of a three suburban motorcade is worth several thousand dollars to be paid by the American taxpayers simply for him to avoid that hour uh, waiting in traffic. Daily Wire piece documented over 125 times in the last three years. So once again, we're citing uh, Brandon Dre here. 
But uh, the fact of the matter is, is that Chris Ray has been the FBI director for just over five years at this point. We're coming up on five and a half years, I believe. And so on the low end, we can estimate that's something like $600,000 worth of fraud, waste, and abuse. The estimates I've seen are actually probably close to twice that. That's more accurate. Uh, it just depends on how the FBI sources out its maintenance and what those contracts look like. And generally speaking, if you know about government contracts, they're pretty lucrative for the for the companies that are getting them. So they're probably making a pretty penny on that. And it's not like they're saving the FBI any cash maintaining this this uh, particular jet. And they've only got the one, right? So there's that. Um, this cost could easily be twice as high, like I said, uh, especially if you were going to be doing an exhaustive accounting of like a private company would do. The private company would count in depreciation. They, you know, cost um, in the end in maintenance cycle and all these other things all get factored into every single flight hour. And then every single individual flight has its own cost as well. So uh, what did the, the national press office say the last time that the daily wire reached out? It says, quote, the FBI is not going to comment on specific plane locations because of operational and security sensitivities. The FBI director's use of the FBI aircraft is long established and continues due to the need, the mission needs of the FBI and the FBI director's security requirements. We should talk about that another time. I think we've already done it earlier on in our podcast. If you want to go back and listen for some of the Steve friend episodes, we've talked a little bit. I think we had an article, uh, a, uh, a show called politically appointed princes, and you can check that out about our, our distaste for the so-called security requirements of the FBI director, which I think are non-existent. I promise you, if Chris Ray walked past you in a grocery store, you would not know who it is because he's walked past me in the FBI offices when I was waiting for him and I didn't know who it was. So, and I knew who I was looking for. He just doesn't have that kind of personal presence. Jim Comey, on the other hand, a uh, different story. When you're seven feet tall, the world is a, a little different animal. All right. So uh, I, I make a note here in this article that uh, not only is uh, this sort of long established and continued needs of the mission kind of thing kind of ridiculous, um, it's actually wrong in a lot of ways. I think it's I think it's uh, obfuscating the points, which is to say that director... Comey actually faced questions about his regular travel on the FBI's private jet because he did a lot of personal travel on it. And Director William Sessions was ultimately removed six years into his tenure appointment over his abuse of FBI jets, of all things, can you imagine? Um, this is, you know, obviously pre-9-11. Um, but the uh, the authorization to purchase this luxury jet was not for personal travel or for the personal or professional travel of the FBI director and security detail, but actually for counterterrorism cases. As I mentioned earlier, I have friends who do this kind of thing. So I kind of sum that all up. Now, what happened to William Sessions is he apparently was misusing both limos, the FBI jet, and then there's actually an article that I linked to in this one, if you want to click through the hyperlinks, showing that the Los Angeles Times reported about how he had uh, accepted tickets to a ballet and he was just regularly flying out for personal travel this is exactly the thing that Chris Ray does. He flies out for personal travel because he's chosen not to live in the D.C. area despite a 10-year appointment. So I want to cover that a little bit here. The Daily Wire was not the first to note the questionable utilization of this multi-million dollar tool. We also saw New York Post writer Miranda Devine, who's also a friend of the Suspendables, uh, talking about the questionable aircraft use in an article that she wrote on October 16, 2022, about his regular flights to Fulton County, Georgia, where Ray maintains his primary residence. All right, here, let's get into this. This seems scandalous to any member of the military or federal service who has a mobility agreement. I'm going to break out what that says. And a mobility agreement is something you sign when you go to work for the federal government that states that you will be uh, amenable to picking up and moving at the pleasure of the government, at the needs of the government, the needs or you know uh, mission requirements of either the federal service or the military. 
Uh, those of you who've been in the military know this, you get a PCS move, you don't have a choice, you may be at a, a duty station for 18 months or two years or three years, and then they're going to pick you up and they're going to move you somewhere else and people sell their homes and have to do whatever they got to do. And they put everything into a government moving truck and then they move over to the next thing and they buy a house and they do it all over again and new schools and they uproot their families. Very, very common. Uh, Chris Ray did not do that, but he doesn't have a mobility agreement. His director appointment comes with a 10-year term. It's a fixed 10-year term. So he won't be there forever, but he'll be there for a decade, which is longer than probably most members of the military are serving anywhere, uh, certainly in my experience. The job is going to be in Washington, D.C. There's no potential to move to another part of the country at this point uh, without him saying so, because he's the FBI director. So we're halfway into his term, and he still has not relocated his family from where he lived when he accepted the appointment to the DC area where he works. So he's a, what they call a geo bachelor. And that's to say that he's geographically isolated from his family and therefore he flies home every weekend. Well, that'd be fine if he flew home commercial and he took his own time and his own money and he got on a plane and he went out there. That's not what happens. People are going to be shocked, but here's the deal. When the FBI director uses the $60 million aircraft that he flies around in, he flies out and, uh, he reimburses the FBI for <laughs> for the cheapest commercial flight that he can find. And he doesn't even have to go find it. His staff will go find it. And then they write it up. And so he reimburses the Bureau like $120, like a Spirit Airlines or a Frontier Airlines ticket for what costs the American taxpayers, let's say on the low end, like $6,000 an hour. But it's probably more like $20,000 for it to take off and land and all the other things and then fly back because it doesn't just stay in Fulton County, Georgia, when he's down there, it flies down, drops him off and then flies back up to Manassas so that it's ready for the counterterrorism mission, then it flies back down again on Sunday and picks him up to take him back to work. So every single flight that he has down to Georgia is actually four plus hours. And then be between this, he was actually adding an additional leg between Reagan and Manassas. Okay, that's the scandal. Now, uh, I was asked this the other day on on uh, Emerald Robinson's show. Why do we care? Because we're talking about a, you know, it's not very sexy. It's not very interesting to a lot of people. It's a financial fraud type of situation. You know, it's misuse of the government jet. So what? You know, it's not hurting anybody in particular. Well, that's not entirely accurate. Number one, as I just told you, William Sessions was actually removed six years into his appointment as FBI director over this exact issue. So there is a playbook here that can be used by House Republicans should they so choose to go after Chris Ray. They could probably impeach him over it because the receipts are in existence. Number one, the, the records that exist show where the plane has gone. There are hard costs that associate fuel bills, uh, engine upkeep and maintenance, the uh, overall sort of depreciation of the of the jet, and then runway fees. He's paying runway fees, and then there's actually a reimbursement record of what he pays, and what he pays is a pittance compared to how much it actually costs the taxpayers. And he does so why? Probably because he left a nine point two million dollar a year job to accept point two million dollars a year. He for, he dropped nine million dollars a year in pay. Because the perks of it are he gets to live like a billionaire. Um, there's not a lot of people who make $9 million a year that are flying around in, in private jets, I have to imagine. Maybe there's some. But this is something he doesn't even have to worry about the cost. He can fly anywhere. He just flew to Morocco this week. Uh, flew out on, I think, Tuesday. Tuesday morning. 
Uh, if not, if not, maybe it was on Monday. Either way, the guy's flying all over the world in a private jet, which is a $60 million resource, which is probably more money than he would be spending on a real jet of his own. And uh, he doesn't have to think about it twice. It's a big deal. This is how you take people down. You find the procedural things. I don't want to get deep in the weeds on this, but this is the, the reason that the board at Project Veritas says that they went after James O'Keefe. They're claiming that his financial malfeasance, and they do have a duty, uh, like a, an obligation to the donors of Project Veritas. Now, donors could say, James can use you know my thing for something else. I donated it specifically for limousine service or private jet usage, but that's not the way that those things were written. I'm sure of it. They just wrote a check to the organization, and then some of those things may have been uh, inappropriate uses. So that's what the board is, is alleging. Everyone's really quick to, to go after them. The, the, I think the people at Veritas are not evil. And um, I don't want to get jumped on for this, but I probably have met more people in that organization than most of you. And what I can say definitively is that the people who work for Veritas, that are the you know the frontline uh, journalists and the uh, the people that are doing all the production of the content and so on, they're really really nice people, and I think very highly of them, having dealt with them in Phoenix and uh, and before when we were working through getting some disclosures out. So. I just, I would like people to be a little bit more patient. It'd be interesting to see that. Um, everybody wants to jump on it and trend a hashtag and things like that. Like nobody is is without blame in these situations. So, you know, in the same way that a lot of leftists will jump and defend the FBI director's use of the jet. I actually had someone tweet at me today and they said, what the heck did they say? Uh, of course he needs that jet. He's hunting around for the Trump cartel all over this country. If anybody is uh, deluded about what Chris Ray does, he's like a like a figurehead manager and like he doesn't approve things at a high level maybe like individual search warrants at like Miralago he might have to approve but he's not running the the daily operations like that happens at a supervisory level like a GS14 somebody who makes you know 160,000 not not the guy who's out there running the entire organization even though he doesn't make much more money and now that I think about it all right so uh, so that's all fun. We did. Uh, we talked about a couple of these pieces. I do want to get into the kind of the meat of the most frustrating thing for me and it is ugly. It's truly ugly. I'm clicking through here to kind of pull it up. We're going to pull up a couple things. Here we go. All right. So this is the Philadelphia Inquirer. This is a newspaper in Philadelphia that is covering an event. There's a photograph here of a woman standing with her dog. I don't know who that woman is. I don't think it matters. <laughs> um, this is a a 1500 block Spruce Street address sidewalk. And here's the, the headline. Off-duty FBI agent shoots, kills dog in city center. It's uh, apparently city center is like an actual place. The incident occurred Monday evening on the 1500 block of Spruce Street. Okay, so we've got pictures here in the south side of the building. Uh, this picture, uh, this uh, particular article is attributed to Robert Moraine, Beatrice Foreman, and Jeremy Roebuck. And here's what it says. An off-duty FBI agent shot a dog outside of city center apartment during uh, uh, on Monday, rather. The FBI and Philadelphia police both said videos posted to social media showed the aftermath of the incident on the sidewalk, uh, showing this residential high-rise, blah, blah, blah. Okay. The special agent was walking a small dog when she encountered at least one other person walking two dogs. According to witnesses, a fight broke out amongst the three dogs, and the agent shot a pit bull named Mia, who would later die that night according to the former boyfriend of Mia's owners. These are some strange sources, by the way. The FBI did not identify the agent. The Philadelphia Police Department officer-involved shooting unit is collaborating with the federal agency to investigate, according to the deputy police commissioner, Frank Van Moore. 
The officials did not provide any more details. And then there was a small uh, protest outside the FBI's headquarters in Philadelphia on Arch Street, where a small handful of pet owners and activists called for the agent to be demoted and fired. And then they said some other things. All right, so emailed statement from FBI Special Agent E. Edward Conway, who's probably going to be their, uh, their spokesperson, says, Our initial information is that the agent shot and wounded an aggressive dog. There were no other injuries. There's going to be an internal uh, shooting review team that goes after it, which happens every time an FBI agent discharges weapon. Let's go to a slightly more fun article. This is by Revolver News. Our friend uh, Darren Beatty, who I've uh, talked to a number of times and I think pretty well of, has done some important work checking into some things. This says, Lady FBI Special Agent in Charge of Entire Philly Office Shoots and Kills Another Woman's Dog. She hasn't worked a case in 17 years. I'll tell you why that's funny. All right. So says many cops have uh, been known to lose their their cool under pressure. They're only human. It's part of the job, sadly. But when you rise to a leadership position and you're literally in charge of the entire Philadelphia FBI, much more control and professionalism is expected of you. Sadly, one female special agent in charge didn't come close to meeting even those minimal expectations. Instead, she went wild and willy-nilly shot and killed a woman's dog during an incident, an uh, innocent evening stroll. Okay. Uh, here's why I think this is funny. Let's talk about the special agent in charge. Her name is Jacqueline McGuire. She worked cases for six years for the FBI from 2000 to 2006, when she was hired on until she left the field six years later. She was part of one of the early headquarters initiatives, getting agents out of the field almost immediately, like six years into their career. That's where I was at mine. I was just figuring out how to do some of the things that I really wanted to do, really stepping into the tenure. An FBI agent is considered tenured at five years. That means that they have reached the level of their um, their terminal grade 13, um, GS 13, as they are working cases, and then they just progress on in steps. And um, that's how you do it. And the, a 1310 is like the most senior brick level or, you know, rank and file type agent. This woman left as a GS 13-2 and went to headquarters. And she never came back. 17 years more, she worked. Um, I'll show you her, her career progression. Here's why this is a funny kind of article to me. So revolver.news has the uh, story. And they quoted my tweets from last night, which is quite funny. I said, she's not an FBI agent. She's the special agent in charge of the at Philadelphia, uh, FBI Philadelphia field office. Six years in the field, ended in 20, 2006. And she hasn't worked another case in over 17 years. Uh, and then there's a video here, which I am going to show you guys. I'm gonna let you listen. This video is showing uh, somebody on the street right after the shooting. And you'll hear some of the uh, distraught people. So I'm going to kind of play this out. Oh, of course. Now nah, we're going to lose the, uh, we're going to lose the uh, access. Here it goes. Video up. So the police are walking through. They've got a, a evidence collection van. So this is a very um, well-walked city street. There's probably 40 people you can see walking around here. Police officers are sitting there attending to this woman who's laying there with the dog. It looks like it's dying in her lap. Uh, the cops are going to pick it up and take it in a van to a uh, emergency animal shelter. And uh, the girl with the, with the pit bull is sitting literally on her knees with a dog dying in her lap. It's pretty awful. And then a couple of people that are shouting, you know, she's an off-duty officer, blah, 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 whatever that is. Um, she's not an off-duty officer. She's an FBI agent. That's not the same thing. There's a reason why I have a problem with the FBI, but I have zero problem with local law enforcement. As a general rule, the people that are keeping the, the you know, the, 
the evil members of society off your back is your local law enforcement. If you don't know that, then you're not paying attention. But the federal government does long-term investigations, and some of these things are probably pretty, you know, they're traumatic or problematic, I would say. So uh, CBS News, the revolver quotes them saying local animal rights organization Revolution Philadelphia released the following statement. This incident put several civilians in danger, and this dog known as Mia lost her life. Um, This woman is a trained professional and a dog owner. Her first reaction should not be to shoot first. This is unacceptable. We're demanding that she be held accountable for her actions. Witnesses say the deceased dog's owner desperately tried to comfort the dog, and of course it ended up dying. So this is uh, something kind of interesting, and it's really troubling in a lot of ways. The thing that troubles me is that we are talking about a woman who hasn't worked cases in a long time, is not a frontline agent the way that we would describe it. And the most important thing is, is that FBI executives have different rules about firearms usage than regular employees, and that may surprise you. But it probably shouldn't shock you that somebody who no longer works cases doesn't go out and do arrests on a regular basis. Like, that's not a thing they generally do. Like, they carry a gun only for the status of it. They carry it, but they're not serious shooters. Very, very few of the senior executives I've ever met were people that I would trust drawing a weapon around me. Like, in fact, if they drew their weapon, I would just watch them. That's the safest thing to do. And that's... um overwhelmingly the case of people at headquarters they don't want to qualify with their weapons they wait until the end of the year and then they do all four qualifications at once and you know for awareness generally speaking fbi agents qualify every three months on a quarterly basis four times a year it's a 50 round qual it's not particularly difficult to to be able to qualify with a handgun and uh and you just knock it out it's an administrative requirement that's not even training that's just saying that you meet the the minimum functionality of running it what we find in a lot of field offices is they're the incompetence with a firearm that the senior executive staff, this is going to be your ASACs and your uh, your SACs. And then sometimes we have things that we call an ADIC, which is an assistant director in charge. That's going to be in uh, DC and, and in New York and also in Los Angeles. These senior executive types, the so-called front office employees, will do what they call executive shoots. They'll take the primary firearms instructor, who's the one who's responsible for grading all the tests, take them out uh, onto the range with nobody else visible. So they're not embarrassed. And they're only shooting with their incompetent peers. And then they shoot a qualification and magically they all qualify. That should bother you. I'm going to say that again. The senior executives go out with someone that works for them, that is responsible for saying whether or not they qualified with their handgun. And then they shoot and they always qualify. And there's never a problem. They can shoot all day until they finally get enough in there or they decide to fudge the score. This lady is one of those types. She's very likely not a shooter. I've talked to people that knew her in New York. They said that she's always done everything the Bureau's ever asked. She's childless. She is, uh, you know, unmarried. And her sole existence is to the FBI. And so you can imagine that someone that is in that position, someone that spends all their life with the FBI and her dog, that she might think of her dog in a way that is not appropriate when you are beholden to a deadly force policy that is put out by the Department of Justice, and it's not flexible. It has a very specific meaning. And one of the tweets that I put out earlier today was very specific about what those words are that you are accountable for if you are a law enforcement officer in the Department of Justice. I'm going to tell you the deadly force policy. I memorized it when I was at the academy. I said it every single day with my surveillance team. I've said this well over a thousand times, uh, and that's not an exaggeration. That's like an actual number. I've said it over a thousand times, and it's worth noting that when you say something and you know what it means, then you can go and you can act appropriately on it, and you don't shoot a dog. 
You've never heard of this happening before. That's why it's a big deal. People don't shoot dogs on the street that are law enforcement officers without serving search warrants at houses. They don't go for a jog and then just shoot a dog because the two dogs got into a fight. This is wildly inappropriate. The DOJ standard is as follows. Law enforcement officers of the Department of Justice may use deadly force only when necessary. That is, when the subject of such force poses an imminent danger of death or serious physical injury to the officer or another person. The real key here is the officer or another person, it has to be imminent danger. That means right now. So a pit bull attacking a child would be an appropriate shooting response. You could justify that. A pit bull attacking you would be an appropriate response. A pit bull attacking a cocker spaniel is not a shooting response for the DOJ, period. Nobody should hold this acceptable. And then moreover, those of us who know anything about firearms know that there are some cardinal safety rules that we tend to uh, to abide by. So we treat every gun like it's always loaded. We keep our finger off the trigger unless we intend to press it. And then the last thing for the FBI is you never point your gun or your weapon at something unless you are justified. Those in the military or those who have come from kind of a hillbilly background, the way I kind of learned how to shoot, you learn that you never point uh, your muzzle at something that you're not willing to destroy. But uh, in the FBI, it's something that you're not justified. And justified means it's covered under that deadly force policy. If you are not justified to point your weapon at something, then you never should. That's safety rule number three, taught at the academy and repeated every single firearm session that this woman has attended probably for the last 20 something years, 23 years. That's really relevant. The last thing that those of us who have been in the military always know is know your target and know your backstop. That means that whatever you are aiming at, if you do not hit it, or if your weapon, uh, if, if your round continues through the target and moves for- forward, it's got to stop somewhere. What's the next thing it's going to hit? And I can assure you that that street scene that we saw, if you're not watching the Rumble video, you can go find it on my Twitter feed. Uh, go to at Kyle Serafin, scroll down a little bit. You'll see a couple of videos about this. The scene is busy. It is a four lane across with probably a suicide lane in the middle, maybe five total lanes of, of traffic, high sided buildings. In downtown Philadelphia, it's in whatever city center is. There's a lot of people that are out and about at night moving around. If you're going to take a shot at a dog and she wounded the dog, she didn't kill it. So it's not like this was a a contact shot, which is when you actually press the muzzle onto the actual tissue. It wasn't a contact shot to the head. You know, who knows what the, what the aiming was. And I'm sure there's going to be some video of it somewhere because either some bus drove by and saw it, or maybe the, you know, the, uh, the apartment building had uh, cameras or there's a city, you know, surveillance camera on a traffic light somewhere. There's some, ca- there's going to be some camera footage of this, some building or business nearby has it, I promise. So that's really wild. Um, it won't get leaked for a long time. Maybe ever they leak things like my body cam footage of me talking to a cop, but they don't want to leak this because she's a senior executive, but this woman took a shot, didn't kill the dog right away, which Okay, so be it. She probably has never shot an animal before. She's probably never shot anything that was alive before. And she decided to do it to protect her small animal. And during the uh, the the encounter, she she yelled something. And I'm going to try to find it here real quick on the fly. I just re- realized I wanted it. So if you'll bear with me just a moment. She yells out during the encounter and two witnesses reported what she said. This was uh, coming off Instagram and people who were, uh, there it is, some people that were nearby. And so one person said, I saw the whole thing. I saw the lady pull out the gun and shot the dog, yelling at the owner, quote, I just shot your dog because your dog was trying to kill my dog. This woman who said this said, I was walking my dog across the street um, and I didn't hear any dogs fighting or growling or anything like that. And then another person responded in these comments and stated, I saw uh, as well. I was directly across the street with my dog. One of the two dogs was being walked and jumped up on the bench where the agent uh, found out 
that the uh, the lady was not police, but actually an agent, where the agent and the dog were sitting. And after an initial sniff, it bit and dragged the agent's much smaller dog to the ground. In fact, there was a lot of screeching and yelling, both dogs and owners. Uh, they attempted to separate and get the aggressor dog to release the bite, but it did not. And this is when the larger dog was shot. I can also verify she did say what you quoted above. Again, I'm going to read that. I just shot your dog because your dog was trying to kill my dog. That does not fall into the FBI's deadly force policy, the DOJ's deadly force policy. These are very specific parameters. Deadly force, only when necessary, when the subject of such force is uh, poses an imminent danger of death or serious physical injury to the officer or to another person. The end. No more. There are some conditions that you can't do it. There's no warning shots that are allowed unless you're in a prison and some other things because DOJ has Bureau of Prisons and they have the U.S. Marshals and some other people that do other stuff. But essentially, that's the most important thing. And they've actually added another thing that said if there was another agent nearby, that agent actually has a duty to stop. They did this after George Floyd. The agent, if they saw this special agent in charge pull the weapon, has a duty to attempt to stop the uh, the unlawful shooting of the dog. And I'm going to say it very clearly. That was an unlawful shooting. That does not follow in the DOJ policy. So now it's going to be up to, that's a bad shoot under DOJ. And then the second thing comes down to is what is the, the Philadelphia's laws about discharging a firearm inside the city limits uh, in close proximity to another person to dispatch a dog. Now they may not have any, um, you know, decision to go after her for this. They may not uh, decide that this is something that is worthy of their time. But this is the lady that uh, signed off on going after Mark Hout. You know, she's the uh, the top agent in Philadelphia, and they went after Mark Hout and uh, did the arrest at his house when they could have just done a summons. So let me read a little bit about where she came from. I think it's, I'm dwelling on this on purpose, but uh, it's because it, it bothers me when people abuse their authorities. And then moreover, I've been accused of like mis- mishandling a firearm. This is the craziest thing I've ever heard of in that. So let's do FBI Philadelphia. Sorry. Um, da, da, da. I had this thing up already. So her name is, uh, once again, Jacqueline McGuire, Jackie McGuire, um, also found out from some of my friends that she has the most number of complaints alleged against her in the history of the FBI as a special agent in charge. She is widely despised within her own office. Um, she was put there in 2000. This office, this says that she took over in October of 2021. All right, so Chris Ray names Jacqueline McGuire, special agent in charge of the Philadelphia field office. She most recently served as a special agent in charge of the criminal division in the New York field office. So while our friend Steve Gray was working and getting ready to retire in New York, she was running the criminal division. In fact, she probably was his boss at some point. We'll have him on and talk about it later. Um, Steve was also a firearms instructor, so we'll get his take on it, or we'll get Sheriff Kreider on to talk about it. Both those guys, you know, 15, 18 years of firearms instructor experience. We'll, we'll get their take on it too, but I think you're going to find that they agree with me. This is not a thing that you can do. So she was assigned to the New York field office right out of, uh, out of the gate, right out of Quantico in the year 2000. She was a member of the JTTF, which means she works counterterrorism. Claims she was the lead agent for the five hijackers of American Flight 777. Um, 2006, she was promoted to SSA. You see that? So that might be five and a half years, but it's been a long time since she's worked. And then she went to be a unit chief where she worked in the counterterrorism division. Supervisory special agent means that she was working as a supervisor at the field office, most likely. Then a unit chief, she went to, she went to headquarters in D.C. And then she went to the Washington field office where she became a, a desk supervisor again in 2011. 
Then she returned to FBI headquarters. So she was already there. So she stayed. So 2014, she was named the special assistant to the executive assistant director of the human resources branch. The human resources branch is widely known as the most useless part of the FBI. It's called HRB or HRD. The human resources division is underneath human resources branch. It is currently being run by Jennifer Moore. Jennifer Moore, my former special agent in charge of intelligence at WFO, Washington Field. She is the woman who pulled the security clearance from me and all the other whistleblowers. All the suspendables have lost their clearance because of her signature. And if you want to see something really fun, you can go check out either my true social or my Twitter account, and you can look at 130 plus pages of her emails and see what a clown show she is. She is a good representation of the types of people that have been in that office. Um, before her was a guy named Sallet. Before that was a guy named Slendorf. Slendorf was uh, removed supposedly for uh, sending uh, dick pics around the office to female subordinates. Sallet had equal problems with um, supposedly having sex in government vehicles. There's a lot of allegations of sexual misconduct specifically in the human resources branch of the FBI. This is all inside baseball, but this is all pretty well validated. This is every person that I've ever talked to in the FBI has the exact same information about these same people. So I'm fairly comfortable that it's accurate. Once again, so she was a special assistant, which is kind of like this secretarial job that you get, but it helps you promote because it's a outside of the normal chain of command. And, you know, you get special experience working with an, ex an executive assistant director, uh, even though that you're only like probably a GS-14. So she did that in uh, 2016. Predictably, she became the uh, the special agent. I'm sorry, the ASAC, the assistant special agent in charge in Birmingham, Alabama. She did criminal and administrative matters. Here's the fun thing: if she oversaw all criminal and admin, and she's never worked a criminal thing because she worked counterterrorism, this should bother you. This is the way the FBI works. Like we put people in charge of things they know nothing about, and you can tell. Her experience was counterterrorism, counterterrorism. She was a counterterrorism division headquarters. And then she went and like got this criminal experience, which allowed her to go take the desk in uh, the special agent in charge in the criminal division in New York. Cause she was the assistant special agent of criminal in Birmingham. Why not? Um, they don't have to know anything. She was also the section chief at the office of public affairs, a yet another administrative useless position that we have. We have a gun carrying person, who does public affairs at FBI headquarters in 2017. And then she was the deputy assistant director in uh, 2018. Doesn't say where 2019 went to New York and then finally moved to the, uh, to the big show where she ran her own field office in Philly, which is a pretty good size office. And the inside baseball that I have is that people told me she was promised the assistant director in charge of the Washington field office. When the current guy, uh, David, I think his name is Sutherland um, or Sunberg. I could be wrong. Anyway, I know his first name is David. Whenever the uh, the ADIC over in Washington Field uh, gives up the, the the seat and either retires or, or moves upward in the chain, then she's supposed to go and do that. That's troubling. She was given investigative awards in 2006, Attorney General's Award for Furthering National Security Interests, whatever the heck that means. And in 09, she got the Distinguished Service Award. Yeah, these are not case awards. In the FBI, we really, you build your reputation on doing great cases. The people who get Attorney General's Awards for excellence, I've never heard of that unless you were out there like getting in a gunfight. And I knew you know, some people who did some wild gunfights over in uh, either Iraq or Afghanistan uh, while they were doing evidence collection with special operations. That's a different animal altogether. Uh, these are just, you know, also ran participation type trophies. Not good. Not impressive uh, to me is what it is. She has a master's degree in criminal justice from Long, Long Island University. Uh, she's got a bachelor's degree from uh, Villanova. 
So that's the story of the woman that went out there, um, utterly incapable, you know, doesn't seem to have a, she wasn't a cop, she wasn't in the military, she doesn't have any background in anything that makes sense with a gun, which is why she probably waited 23 years, and then the only time she ever used her gun that was issued to her was to shoot a dog, because she was trying to keep track of her fur baby. That's not because I don't love dogs, people. It's not because I think that dogs are not valuable. I have a dog. I've had dogs my whole life. You can't shoot a dog under the DOJ's deadly force policy. It's black and white. That's what I'm making the argument of. It doesn't matter whether you like pit bulls or you doesn't. There's a whole group of people that are talking about, oh, it's a pit bull, so thank God. No, FBI agent using weapon incorrectly and against policy, that should terrify you. And she shouldn't get away with it. She should be fired over it. There's no question in my mind. Um, She should at least do whatever the suspension is. But I guarantee you, if they're going to take my clearance over me shooting in the desert into the dirt, then they should take her clearance for shooting in a freaking city with a bunch of people around her. It's absolutely bad news. But so be it. Um, That's that's all I've got for today. And I I think that was enough dwelling on some some bad news. I do appreciate you listening. If you have time, you got some thoughts on there. You love pit bulls. You hate pit bulls. You think that Jackie McGuire should be given a a pass because she shot a bad dog. You think she should be hung because she killed somebody's, you know, pooch. Put in the comments. Let's see. I'll read them. I'll, I'll respond. I love that. Um, give us a like if you don't mind uh, on Rumble. We really appreciate it. You give us a five-star review if you're uh, listening to either Apple or Spotify or iHeartRadio or any of the other apps that we have out there like Podbean. Um, feel free to give us a, a review. We'll take critiques. If you like what you hear, though, please tell us. Share it with your friends. And uh, I'm very appreciative of it. I would bring up a five-star review. I guess we got a bunch over the weekend. We'll do it on Friday when Phil is here. It's much harder for me to plan things out when I don't have my guy. And uh, as many of you know, when you don't have someone with your back, makes it a little bit harder. So um, thank you for listening to the Kyle Serafin show. I do appreciate your attention and your, your um, tremendous response to our last video. And I hope you enjoy this too. If there's things that you want to see, if there's guests that you want to know, and if you think I can get them on, I'll give it a shot. Uh, We do have some whistleblowers coming up for next week again. And um, thank you for all of the support the gifts and go and the, uh, the prayers and all of that. It really does mean a lot to us. Um, it's a rough time for our family, but it doesn't mean that we are not very appreciative of the, the verbal and the financial support that people have put behind it. So thanks so much. We'll catch you again on Friday and uh, take care of yourselves out there. Thanks for listening to the Kyle Serafin show. Be sure to follow him on Twitter and truth at Kyle Serafin.